And welcome to episode 75 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Alexis Neal, and with me today are Sarah Davis and Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Hello, Sarah and Victoria. Hi. Hello. Um, before we get started today, I do want to say thank you uh, to those folks who have liked our Facebook page. Uh, as of today, we're up to 487 likes. So please do tell your friends. And if you haven't liked it already, please do like it so that we can uh, get that up to 500. Um, so please uh, do that if you get the chance. Um, before we get started talking about our topic for the day, let's go ahead and introduce ourselves for any listeners that might be new to the program. Uh, Victoria, why don't you start us off? Sure. Thanks, Alexis. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I am one of the founding members of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I live in Minnesota with my husband, Michael, of the Christian Humanist Podcast and our two cats, Smirjakov and Dorothy Parker. Uh, I am audience development manager at Public Radio International, uh, which is keeping me pretty busy. Uh, as you might imagine, it is a rather interesting time to work at a news organization. So uh, that's some that's some, some fun stuff. Uh, and I'm excited to be here today and talk about Miss Fisher. All right. Thanks, Victoria. Sarah, how about you? Hi, uh, my name is Sarah Davis and I am a librarian in Waco, Texas. So I spend most of my time finding out information for other people. So I get to spend most of my time researching and being curious. So it's pretty much the best job ever. It, it sounds pretty ideal. I'm not going to lie. Um, uh, and I am uh, Alexis Neal. I live in southern Missouri with my husband, Coyle, of the City of Man podcast and our two little boys, which means I spend most of my time chasing after them. Uh, and when I'm not fishing foreign objects out of the baby's mouth, uh, I do teach a few law-related classes at Southwest Baptist University. And um, I've also recently become involved in local government, and I'm gearing up for campaign season. So that's super exciting and definitely keeps me busy. Um all right, so uh, today our topic of discussion is the television series Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. Um, before we dive into uh, all of the uh, Christian feminist nuance uh, of that particular show, uh, a little bit of background. Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries is a series that originally aired in Australia beginning in 2012 and gradually trickled over stateside uh, beginning in 2013 uh, via Acorn TV and PBS. Um, it's based on a series of detective novels by Carrie Greenwood uh, that were published beginning in 1989. Um, these novels featured the titular heroine, uh, Miss Phryne Fisher. She is a glamorous and wealthy private detective in 1920s Melbourne, um, an independent liberated woman. Uh, Miss Fisher is assisted in her adventures by her staff. Uh, this includes her lady's maid, 
Dorothy or Dot Williams, uh, the capable and uh, if improbably named Mr. Butler. Uh, you can probably guess what his job is. Uh, and then a pair of communist cab drivers, Cess uh, for Cecil and Bert for Albert. Um, and then occasionally by a close friend of hers, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Mac McMillan. Uh, her investigations also regularly bring her into contact with uh, the official police force, uh, sometimes cooperative contact and sometimes competitive contact, uh, specifically in the person of Detective Inspector Jack Robinson, um, eventually presented as a possible romantic interest for Phryne and Constable Hugh Collins, who ends up being a romantic interest for Dot. Uh, as a little bit of an aside here, uh, I have not read uh, the, the books, but apparently in the original novels, Phryne Fisher is in her 20s. Um, but the Australian actress who plays her in the television series, uh, Essie Davis, uh, was 41 when the series started. Uh, and this is not like 41 playing 28 uh, either. Uh, no disrespect to the lovely Essie Davis. That's just not what the, the television show is trying to portray. Uh, instead, the television iteration of Miss Fisher, uh, she has been around and she's done some living and her experience ends up making her more alluring and not less. Um, the show embraces Miss Fisher's independence and feminist ideals, including a fairly modern uh, attitude towards sexual ethics. Uh, and it was also particularly celebrated for its incredible costume design. Uh, the television series ran for three seasons or series, uh, as they're called, and concluded in 2015. However, in 2017, crowdfunding campaigns raised something like $600,000 for a Miss Fisher film. Uh, and the Miss Fisher and the Crypt of Tears uh, film is, is set to start filming later this year. So that's just a little crash course on, on the background there. Uh, before we start talking specifics, though, I'm curious, uh, ladies, um, uh, how do you feel about the show? Have you read the original books? Uh, and are they worth reading? Um, and uh, and then most importantly of all, I want to know, would you rather have uh, Franny Fisher's hats or Franny Fisher's coats? Sarah, what about you? Well, I have not read the books, which always makes me feel a little sad when I have to admit that. Um, in any situation, I always feel like I should have read the original material. But um, I found the series via Netflix. It was one of those, you know, because you've watched, you know, this, 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 and this, we recommend this other show. And I uh, enjoyed it from the very beginning. If I had to have some clothing, I would probably go with her coats. Because nobody really wears hats anymore. Um, we're not British. We can't pull them off as a nation. And coats are still actually practical when people in America wear them. So I would go with her coat collection. It's a solid choice. Solid choice. Victoria, what about you? Um, I have not read the books either. And I, I agree with Sarah's assessment assessment that uh that that makes me sad whenever i have to say that though um i have a couple plane trips coming up in the next few months and i'm thinking that uh some of those might be my plane reading you know because you won't have to think about it much and it doesn't matter if i pause to get something from the drink cart um you know Friny would probably approve so uh i might i might do that and as to the uh coat or hat question um i'm going to go rogue and say i would rather have her earrings which are amazing yeah i mean it's it's tough she has a pretty a uh, pretty stellar wardrobe across the board i'm i'm yeah it's if i were the kind of person who wore those kinds of clothes i would be very envious but i wouldn't be able to pull them off in rural missouri so um and uh, there is actually a jewelry collection for sale um, inspired by the show, a lot of really fabulous um, earrings and brooches, uh, but they are not in any way affordable. As as well, they shouldn't be. I mean, if they're supposed to be the kind of thing that Franny would wear, they shouldn't be affordable for us non wealthy, uh, 
you know, folks. Um, all right, so um, let's go ahead then and move into our first, oh, I guess I should say, I also have not read the books, um, and I also feel a little bit bad about that, but I also know sometimes when you go back and read the series for something like this, the idea was great, the execution isn't always, and I haven't heard people raving about the books, so I don't feel super terrible, but I do at some point want to at least crack one open and see uh, if they're worth uh, reading through or if I should just stick to the, the TV show. Um, and I'm, I'm a big fan of the coats uh, as well. Um, all right. So then for our, uh, we're going to move now into our knowing um, section a little bit more, I guess that background we've, we've covered. Um, but now I want to talk uh, moving from that into reading. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit more about specific themes and characters and, and what have you uh, in the show. Um, uh, beginning with sort of general uh, issues and themes that fit under the umbrella of feminism or portrayals of gender or interactions between genders, things like that. Um, let's go ahead and start with Victoria. Victoria, what are your thoughts uh, on a, a specific theme, character, or episode dealing with gender or feminism? So I would like to talk about uh, Dr. Mack. Um, you mentioned her briefly earlier. She's probably other than Franny, my favorite character on the show. Um, as you said, her name's Elizabeth McMillan. She is um, sort of Miss Fisher's closest uh, friend that is not also directly under her employ. Um, the episode I'd like to discuss at a little bit of length is the 10th episode of the first series. Um, it's called Death by Misadventure. And what happens in the episode is that um, Dr. Mack has been employed as the personal doctor of this factory owner. And um, we find out eventually, because Dot goes undercover at that factory, that there's been a, a kind of labor scam going on, that the factory owner's sister has been um, making these women at the factory work extra hours, and also that um, another woman who uh, is employed at the factory is having a lesbian affair with a fellow worker. Um, the fellow worker who is wrapped up in this labor scam um, has a fight with the people uh, orchestrating the labor scam, gets pushed into these um, horrible early 20th century machines and dies. Um, but what's, what's interesting to me about the episode, other than the sort of um, rather ham-fisted labor politics um, that I, I don't think is, is handled very well, but I'm sure we'll talk about um, the, the way the show deals with politics generally um, more later. But other than that, I think uh, the episode's discussion and response to lesbian themes is particularly interesting. So we're in Australia in the 1920s, and Phryne is, you know, she's sort of flapperish, she's progressive, we know that, but even given that context, um, I think it's rather interesting the way that the lesbian theme is handled. Um, we, we start off getting a really flat vision of the factory owner. Dr. Mack calls him, um, says that he's a bad person, that he has a bad heart in every sense of the word, medically and morally. Um, we hear sort of whispers socially about Dr. Mack's proclivities. 
um, Aunt Prudence, who is Phryne's sort of buttoned-up, very gossipy aunt, says um, people on the hospital board, Aunt Prudence serves on all sorts of fancy, uh, well-moneyed boards, are complaining and gossiping um, because A, Dr. Mac is a lesbian, and B, she's telling the factory girls about birth control. Um, that's particularly interesting, too. As a birth control pushing doctor in uh, a 1920s Commonwealth country, if this were more historically accurate and less sort of politically flat, uh, they would have had the guts to make Dr. Mack a eugenicist, but they don't. Um, because what they want is a pretty sensibility uh, that is also on the right side of history in terms of 21st century politics. So they, don't yes. have, so they don't have the guts to go there. Um, I want to say one more thing, and then I'll let you guys respond. Um, when it turns out um, that Dr. Mac and Daisy, the dead factory worker, had a romantic relationship, we find out that uh, the other factory worker, Nettie, is jealous, and that's how Daisy falls into the machines. Um... Phryne is responding to all of these people's uh, views of lesbian attitudes and says, uh, People tell me Gaskin disapproved of Mac's attitudes, but so does half the world, the wrong half, if you ask me. So it just, it's, it's dripping with sanctimony. Um, I mean, I, I don't think that... Obviously, it's wrong to, to treat Dr. Mech or uh, Daisy as, as lesser humans uh, because they are in a homosexual relationship. Obviously, you shouldn't do that. But the show really, really goes out of its way to say, even though we're set in the past, we don't have backward opinions. Look, look, look. Well, um, so I, I just wish it would have been a little bit more nuanced. And that's all I'll say about that. Well, I completely agree with you on that, Victoria. And... One of the things that I that I find a little confusing is that we've talked uh, earlier in the episode, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later, about just how gorgeous the costumes are. And every article that I read about this uh, talked about how much effort they put and money they put into having historically accurate planes and cars and clothing and settings. And so to go to all of this trouble for historical accuracy, but then make sure like, no, 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 no. We really need to make sure everyone knows that she's, like, not just progressive for her time period, but progressive for the time it's being filmed. It really is a little jarring for me. Um, it actually reminds me several times if you're, uh, when I read my uh, historical uh, romance novels, they will, they'll frequently do that. Um, if somebody is a, uh, like, a, a factory owner then we need to make sure that because he's a love interest, we need to shoehorn in that he believes that nobody under the age of 21 should be working. I'm like, no, he's a factory worker in like 1820. He doesn't actually think that. I'm sorry. And, you know, and it really can be a very jarring instance that just pulls you out because it didn't actually need to be in there. But they're very concerned that you know that they're that they're on the wrong side of history, which if they hadn't mentioned it, it wouldn't have even occurred to me to think about it. Right. It just, it doesn't make the characters seem like human beings with actual human opinions, you know? Well, part of what it is, I think, and I, I know, again, we'll talk more about this uh, on a later point, but with uh, Phryne and 
good lord, I know we need to talk about her actual name for a little bit. Uh, Miss Fisher is almost a Mary Sue, I think, in the fact that she has every single opinion she has is correct. She doesn't really have flaws because, to me, if you have a flaw as a character, it actually negatively affects the things that happen to you. And she always kind of just falls up and everything kind of works out for her, which, you know, makes sense as the star of the show. But she does have a little bit of a Mary Sue quality. And I think uh, this kind of uh, this, you know, we need to make sure everyone knows that she thinks the right things, you know, for something that's going to for, you know, 90 years in the future. Yeah, that that is definitely a little jarring. Um, Just in case our all of our listeners aren't familiar with that term. Uh, a Mary Sue is uh, a term from fan fiction culture primarily, and um, it's used mostly when authors write themselves um, into stories, usually as the uh, romantic interest of the main male character. Um, and it's just considered to be flat writing. Um, you know Mary Sue's because they have perfect opinions, as Sarah said, and also usually because they are um, ridiculously pretty. Um, their eyes are usually um, some strange color, some very specific color like lilac or cerulean, uh, in my experience. So that's a, <laughs> that, that, that's a, a Mary Sue, um, an overly specific sort of too perfect uh, female character. And I, I do think Franny is, is kind of Mary Sue-ish. Um, for one more example of a Mary Sue, uh, to go to a, a very different place, I would have said that in the... Uh, Force Awakens, Ray is kind of a Mary Sue. She's perfect at everything. Phryne, perfect at everything. Uh, please address all of your Star Wars-related hate mail to Sarah and not to me. <laughs> Don't worry. I'll take it. I'm strong. <laughs> well, actually... Um... I, uh, I don't know that I have specific additional thoughts on that. I think we'll revisit some of that that later. Other than I do like that Dr. Mac, like Phryne, is not supposed to be 25. Um, so I appreciate having interesting characters who are allowed to be ages other than um, the ages that, that Hollywood so often um, portrays women uh, in America. Yeah, uh, but that, that is fantastic. And I should mention, um, Dr. Mac also has rockin' clothes. Um, she almost always wears pants, um, cause she's a different kind of lady. Um, she's very Catherine Hepburn in her look. Yes, I was just about to say that. She is very Catherine Hepburn. She also has red hair, um, and she rocks a lot of scarves, uh, which I enjoy because I also rock a lot of scarves. She's, she's pretty fantastic. I mean, the, the, one of the things I love about this, because Franny kind of drives me up a wall at times, uh, but the supporting cast, uh, the characters are all, I mean, that's really who I enjoy watching. But, um... Uh, speaking of uh, Phryne being such a Mary Sue, such a perfect character, one of the things I wanted to talk about um, is how she got that way. Um, so in um, uh, another episode, episode, uh, I forget which one it was, uh, the name of the episode is uh, Murder at Montparnasse. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's That's, French. That's uh, um, series one, episode seven. Thank you very much. Um, uh, we find out that Phryne was not always the Phryne that we know and love because she's perfect. Uh, once upon a time, she was uh, a, a weaker version of herself uh, in many ways like she is now, but but uh, not as strong, not as liberated. Um, and in fact, uh, found herself in a relationship with a bad man. Um, and then we find sort of through the course of that episode, she is able to... Uh, 
you know, confront him. And, and we, we get the impression that a lot of who she has become is because of how she dealt with this experience. Um, and, uh, I think that's really, that's really interesting. I mean, she, she was still scrappy. We know she was scrappy. She was brought up. I mean, she's wealthy in the show, but she was raised very, very poor, only became wealthy when all of her male relatives died in the First World War. Uh, and then she ended up with the cash. Um, so she she had a tough upbringing, uh, worked as a nurse during the war, I believe. So she had to have a certain amount of fortitude for that. Uh, and then uh, afterwards was uh, in Dottie, her, her lady's maid's words, brave enough to be a nude model for a painter in France. So we definitely see sort of glimmers of that uh, brave, liberated, not as concerned about what society thinks of her, uh, Franny, that we we meet later on. Um, but she is different. We get the impression she was different then. She's different now. She's changed, and for the better, I think, according to the show's um, the show's view, uh, which I think is something that that we can relate to as Christians, right? We we understand the idea of good coming out of evil, um, particularly the idea that a sovereign God can and does use things that were intended for evil to achieve good ends, uh, as he does with the enslavement of Joseph, intended by his brothers for evil uh, in uh, in the Bible, that which then God uses to save the future nation of Israel from starvation in a coming famine. Uh, and of course, we see this most of all in the death of Christ, an action very much meant for evil by its perpetrators, but used by God to accomplish the salvation of his people through the substitutionary sacrifice of his son on the cross uh, for the sins of those who have faith in him. And we certainly see in our own lives how God uses hardship and suffering to sanctify us so that we can be more like him. So we know that this idea of bad things happen, good things can come of that. That's a familiar concept. Uh, but that's not the same thing as saying in order to have a good thing happen, you have to have something bad happen first. Um, and so I think that's that's a little bit different. Uh, suffering may be a common means of achieving maturity, but I don't think it's the only means that God can or does use. And I don't think it's the only way that that, that can happen in a secular context either. Uh, but I, I feel like there's a trend in a lot of the shows we see now with a strong female character that we end up with a backstory where they used to be weak, which is great. For those of us who don't feel particularly strong, it's, it's sort of a nod to say, just because you're weak now doesn't mean you'll always be weak. You too can be strong like Phryne. Um, So that I, I, that possibility of change, I think, is good. But it seems like the way they get there is that always that they have endured some terrible thing, uh, most especially abuse at the, at the hands of a bad man. And now they are strong. Um, and it almost feels like somehow abuse is a necessary precondition for maturity, liberation, and strength which I don't think is the case. Uh, but assuming that the show wants to set up Franny as some sort of liberated feminine ideal, which I think we've talked about, she kind of is supposed to be that, um, could you have someone become as empowered and liberated and strong and sassy or whatever as Miss Fisher without having endured that kind of abuse or being otherwise victimized by a bad man? Is it necessary to endure that kind of thing to become someone like Franny? Um, do we see any women on the show who are as awesome as, well, no one's as awesome as Franny, but people who are as awesome as Franny who got there without having this kind of toxic, awful relationship with a horrible man. Um, does liberation have to be preceded by subjugation and abuse? Uh, did Renee Dubois in some way make her what she is? Because uh, that, I really hate the idea of giving him any kind of credit for that um, or saying that he somehow served a positive role in her life. Um yeah, and I just, I, I, I don't know. I, I just, is a question that came up for me watching it. 
Um, and it seems to undermine the idea of it, of independence for Phryne if she needs a man to, to sort of be the catalyst for her development. Um, I don't have answers. I just have questions. Uh, Victoria, I know you mentioned that some of these questions tie into some of Simone de Beauvoir's writings. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, um, I, I hope. I hope that I don't completely botch this. Um, and I, I don't think it's a one-to-one um, correlation either, but I do think what you're talking about is quite related to something that de Beauvoir um, explores in her ethics of ambiguity. Um, everybody always talks about the second sex. The second sex is important. Ethics of ambiguity is better. Um, it's deeper. It's an exploration of... Um, existentialist ethics. Um, Sartrean folks like to say that this is the book that Sartre um, should have written but but never did, um, and some of them, I believe, say that um, Beauvoir did it better than, um, than Sartre would have, but uh, Ethics of Ambiguity has three sections. Um, I'm going to talk about the second one, which is called Personal Freedom and Others. Um, no, I'm not going to tell you what it's called in French, because my French is terrible. Um, she talks about several different kinds of people in Personal Freedom and Others. The one that I think relates to um, what you're kind of thinking through, Alexis, is uh, the... Uh, the archetype of what she calls the serious man, um, which is a, a kind of child adult, and uh, he's he's trapped in this childish state because uh, he thinks, as de Beauvoir says, children do, um, that there are an objective governing set of morals independent of his own consciousness, that there's sort of um, goodness and badness sort of overarching in the world that exist, but that you operate um, outside of. So I, I think that that, um, that relates to what you're saying, this idea of like capital B bad turning Phryne capital G good um, w without sort of all of the in-between stuff, without um, personal autonomy, without um, chains of events that lead you places just like bad and good and uh, people operating, but not in any kind of um, nuanced way. Does that make sense? Uh, it, it does, I think. Um, I mean, it does. I understand it's not as, as simple as just, you know, bad person caused frightening to become become good. I just I just I feel like I see that trend so much. Um, and, and certainly with the with the, the the Me Too movement, where we're sort of getting an idea of how widespread some of these experiences are, getting a glimpse of that. Um, I don't want to then turn it into everyone who's awesome got that way because a man was awful to them or that that was a, a part of it, even if it was a piece of it, that, that there are ways to become um, a mature woman, um, an independent woman that don't require that um, in the same way that, you know, we don't we don't require church elder like we want our church elders to be mature but we don't require that they have like endured a personal tragedy even though that of course can be a way that the lord sanctifies someone um and that is is certainly you know is something that a lot of people have experienced but we we allow for maturity uh occurring apart from that and i just i feel like in pop culture i don't see a whole lot of portrayals of women who are strong and independent, who don't have as a sort of pivotal key moment 
uh, in their own understanding of their backstory, this kind of an interaction with a man. Well, um, um, what I would say for that, Alexis, is it's not necessarily that, that any individual has to be kind of dominated by um, or have experienced this type of um at least in Friday's case, abuse at the hand of someone who's significantly more powerful than they are. But I do think to become a, a strong individual, woman, man, uh, child, you can't have strength unless it's tested. And you can't be tested unless there is a difficulty. And so there is, and so having her relationship, um, is a difficulty. It is something that is hard that she overcomes and she grows from that. Just like I'm sure all three of us and all, and all of our listeners have had that difficult thing that you, we've come up against that we have to actually overcome because if you've never actually been tested against that, how do you actually know you that you're strong? Because if not, you are one, you're not a real person. If you've never come up against um, significant difficulties as an adult, but that that's how we get stronger and i but yes i do think it's interesting that instead of just kind of there being a um instead of that difficulty being kind of like a chaotic just a general chaotic world or something like that it is very much a a powerful man um victimizing uh a woman and that's kind of how she's coming um and developing that strength as opposed to just you know gaining that strength from being a nurse in the first world war like that's also something that could make you a very strong woman like you know i would think you'd be plenty strong after that anyway but those continual tests continually make a stronger mean we all know that from real life and again if if we if we don't come up against something we don't know that we're strong because it's it's easy to have everything go your way though highly unrealistic Sure. And I, I guess that's part of what bugged me, sort of like what you guys were saying earlier, like that idea of reaching for kind of the the easy, uh, the easy storyline. Right. You've got you've got a girl who grew up poor. Her sister disappears. She has to deal with never knowing what happened to her sister and, and all of the, the stuff she's dealt with 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 her sister's uh, suspected kidnapper and suspected murderer. She has to be you know, she's a nurse in, in a horrible, horrible war. She goes from being poor to being wealthy. Like there's plenty here for her to be Franny without having to have the abusive boyfriend. Um like, I, I totally was not wondering how she got to be, you know, like, it sounded like there were a lot of good reasons. If she went from being someone with no voice as a, as a poor woman to now being someone who is wealthy and in a position now to to exercise her autonomy and independence, like, that to me, that's enough. I'm sure she endured all kinds of things as a, a you know, a kid growing up in the poor, poor part of town or, like you said, as a nurse. So it just felt a little bit like, really, another, like, another, everybody has to get their strength the same way, really? And that, I think, is part of what was was bugging me a little bit about that because I felt like she was had the potential to be complex for other reasons that weren't a bad man um, or a bad boyfriend. So I guess Murdoch Foyle is also a bad man, but I I agree um, with the the sort of bad boyfriend angle, feeling like uh, feeling like cheating the narrative, um, and, and I think that the biggest way that that happens hasn't been mentioned yet, um, and that's. Um, Phryne's kind of resulting sexual ethics. Um, R- Renee tells her three or four times, um, I stopped counting after three or four, um, that she's his and she belongs to him. Um, and then he hits her. 
and that's obviously bad. Um, but she she spends, I think, the entire series, and this is part of her sort of will-they-won't-they they Sam and Diane thing she has going with Jack, too, um, that she's not going to belong to a man, that she's going to have lots and lots of sexy, sexy sex um, and really enjoy it, um, which... I, I am all for pop culture depictions of women enjoying sex. I don't want to sound like I'm not. Um, but it the the series makes it clear fairly early on that this is a reaction to her bad relationship with Renee, um, and and it doesn't really seem like an autonomous move. Um, so I don't I don't like that either. That's a really good point. I hadn't specifically tied her her. I mean, you're, you're right. The show does make that connection. I just, I somehow missed that. But that's a really good point that she's still sort of living in that shadow, uh, even as the show tries to tell us she's moved past it. Uh, he's reaching forward and and affecting the way that she's living her life, which will tie into something I want to raise at the very end. But um, yeah, that's all super, super helpful. Uh, Sarah, did you want to talk about um, anything related to feminism or gender as it's portrayed in the show? Um. The main thing that um, kind of popped up to me was the, uh, the, and it really goes along with what we were just talking about, is essentially, at least in the first season, uh, the lack of essentially uh, significant positive male-female interactions, um, or not interactions, but I guess uh, relationships and marriages. So, for one... Uh, we we consistently have Franny talking about how you know that she, that she will never belong to somebody and marriage. She it's very clear that she views marriage, at least for her, as a negative thing. Um, we have our uh, uh, romantic lead for Franny, Jack, the detective inspector, who is estranged from his wife, and we don't really know why but that that kind of fits with his character we find out uh that he is getting a divorce and later on in the second series he does get divorced but there's there's not really any so we don't have a positive relationship there one of her uh franny's lovers uh lin chun uh who is i think around for two or three episodes if that's right ladies and franny tells him you know you can't have me. We we can we can have this relationship, but I will never marry. And he himself uh, decides to go for an arranged marriage. Uh, that relationship um, has to be approved by his grandmother. And eventually, he decides to marry the woman, even after his grandmother, you know, changes her mind. Because we find out that the uh, the woman from the arranged marriage is in fact a secret communist. And he, he goes ahead and he does it. But again, he's doing it to save her. He's not really doing it because he loves this new bride or anything like that. And I just thought that that was, that was, that was a little sad that we have this whole series with, you know, a, a wide variety of characters and a, a very um, diverse. Um, she, really, she, uh, she really has a fairly uh, diverse um, cast in terms of like, um, not necessarily a... Th- ethnically but at least um you would think that a show about somebody who is as high class as her is really just going to be with um other upper class but you she interacts with a whole range of people on the economic scale and that with all of that you don't really see any happy or even just kind of eh, marriages as far as i am aware and so i i found that um Rather interesting that uh, that um, 
marriage is very much something that kind of traps you. You don't want to, you don't want to be stuck in it. We, you want the freedom that's going to come from these multiple choices. Um, and at least again, that's how the, the first series uh, really plays it. I know that um, Dot and her, uh, her boyfriend or Hugh. Beau, Hugh, yes, that they end up, they get married, I believe in the third season, but until then you just kind of have this kind of continual will they, won't they, but we never really get a, a good positive marriage relationship. I mean, even the, um, even at the, uh, in the third, in the first series, um, when her cousin is getting married and they're, they're out there, they are just the most out there couple talking about having threesomes at their engagement party you know, it's, it's, it's really out there. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's the main thing I noticed was that there are, there are not what I would consider a lot of positive male female relationships in the first series. So. And, and that's uh, literally true from the very beginning. The, the pilot um, hinges on a, a contentious marriage um, that, that ends in murder. So yeah, that's, that's something that um, really flows through the the entire series um the the only thing that pushes against that in a meaningful way is franny and jack's relationship um and even even then there's a lot of a lot of back and forth um which of course makes uh his name even more hilarious did we did we mention his name uh the the improbably named jack robinson um as in quick as you can say jack robinson uh which is funny because jack does not do anything quickly he never makes decisions and drags his feet all the time on everything even though he's a detective it's an excellent point uh and actually while we're talking about names um sarah did you want to take a minute to talk about franny's name well i will say the only thing I could really find on her is um, there's a website that I always use called uh, BehindTheName.com until I looked her up. And her name is apparently the same name as an incredibly famous Greek courtesan. And apparently it's the name of a very famous Greek courtesan, which is uh, supposed to also inform us a little bit about her character while doing a lot of very thorough research on an on something that I would never allow my students to use, Wikipedia, it said that according to the books, her father was supposed to name her um, Psyche, but got the name wrong and named her Phryne by accident. Um, and I do the thing I do like about her name is it is just that kind of super ridiculous aristocratic British name. That I mean, she's not British, but. That kind of upper classy name that when you hear it, you're like, oh, that person sounds like they have money. It's like naming your child Bentley or Winston or something like that. It's just one of those names that kind of conjures a certain class of individual. And I think, you know, Phryne really does that. Meanwhile, her sister's name was Jane. Yeah. And yeah, poor Jane. Yeah, even now, like, they they consistently pronounce her name correctly, obviously, in the series. But if I if I'm just looking at the name on a piece of paper, I still can't pronounce it correctly. I say, like, friend or something when I'm, like, I'm reading it to myself. I, I never actually pronounce it correctly when I'm reading it to myself. That's fair. I mean, it, it's, it's you know, we're not we're not used to you know, reading Greek pronunciations, I think, much in uh, in, in modern modern times. Yeah. Um, well, uh, anything else quickly about uh, gender before we move on to discussing religion on the show? 
Um, I would want to say one quick thing is that uh, Phryne does have a very unique brand of feminism, but it is not one that very many people are going to be able to actually engage in. That she does have lots, you know, she's gorgeous, she's beautiful, she has this unique temperament and has found apparently the one police detective and the one that's going to just let her follow him around and just have no problem with this and always kind of lets her do stuff, even when it's massively illegal, or at least it would be massively illegal in the, in the United States. Maybe they have, I'm sure they may have very different criminal laws in Australia. And so it's, it's empowering, but it's, it's narrow. I think, yeah, I think that's a, it's a, an excellent point. I mean, it's, it is, uh, like it's, it's fun to watch and sort of to aspire to, but for those of us who are not independently wealthy, possessed of, you know, really kind of insane good looks uh, and, and wonderful taste. Um, that's not, or even, and even the temperament, right? Like not all of us given all of those things would necessarily do what she's doing. Like dot, if you put dot and give her all of that money, <laughs> dot is still not going to be friny. Like she's not going to do that. She doesn't have that temperament. Um, but even more, like if you leave dot where she is, could she mimic friny and, and could she do what friny does um, and have that kind of feminism? Or is that a, a privileged feminism born of, of the specific place that, that friny occupies that she's, I mean, she's allowed to enjoy that. I'm not saying she can't enjoy the privileges that she has, but it doesn't mean that it can be something that we can use as an example. Um, and I don't even know. I, I watch this and I'm like, you know, I don't know. This is going to work for Phryne in another 30 years um, if she keeps doing it this way because I, I just I don't know that she'll have the same opportunities um, that she has now or if she were to lose her money would would she still be able to, to do the things that she does so I think that's a valid point as to whether or not it's accessible an accessible form of feminism for, for people who are not in her particular unique circumstances no I mean it's it's not and that's the point right I mean that's why we're watching this beautiful jewel colored TV show set in the past like, I mean, let's let's critique it, yes. But, I mean, we like it because it's aspirational. No, and, and that's absolutely, I, mean, I think that's absolutely right. I just, uh, again, it, it, to the extent that the show tries to say, and that's why we should be like Franny, that's where we say, wait a minute, this is an ex- escapist TV show. <laughs> um, don't, don't turn around and then assume that those things reflect back on, on the real world. Um, yeah, don't go start just, like, randomly showing up and messing around, um at uh murder scenes and like regular police force does not appreciate that and you're tainting the evidence and it probably won't be able to be used in court so the guy that you caught will get get to go uh go free so good on you uh Franny. um anyway we should move on to uh to the show's portrayal of religion um i i'll i want to talk a little bit about dot um she's sort of i think the, the big one that we see uh and i'll try to make this this short i think there's kind of a lot there um, so, so Dorothy Williams is Miss Fisher's lady's maid and sort of assistant detective. Uh, the, one of the first things we find out about Dot is that she is a Catholic, um, and kind of a silly Catholic. Um, she's afraid to use modern appliances, including the telephone, um, because her priest told her that the electricity would explode the earth's molten core. Uh, she also prays for the zebra at the zoo, or sorry, the zebra at the zoo with the gammy leg, um, she, uh, she is romantically involved with Constable Collins, but is conflicted when she learns that he is a Protestant. Um, and in fact, the Catholic-Protestant divide is a significant obstacle that we continually revisit in Dot and Hugh's relationship over the course of the series. Uh, that kind of a 
conflict might sound kind of odd to our modern, more ecumenical ears. Uh, and I was curious when I watched the show uh, whether this concern was supposed to be unique to Dot and Hugh as like these like super uh, pious pr- examples of their uh, different faiths or um, whether it was just reflective of a more widespread attitude um, uh, in Australia at the time. So I uh, also did a little research on Wikipedia, uh, knowing that it is not an actual valid source, but in this case, it's what I used. Uh, So apparently, beginning with the first fleet of convict ships from Britain, uh, Protestant Christianity, specifically the Church of England, was the predominant faith in Australia. And I'm addressing here specifically Anglo-Saxon and other European folks who came to Australia. I'm not talking about the religious history of the Aboriginal Australians at this time. Um, Something like 10% of the original batch of prisoners were Catholic, specifically Irish Catholic. And the political tensions between them and the colonial government led to a general skepticism and suspicion of Catholics. So there was that tension. It was largely political rather than theological. Um, Initially, uh, the colony was, uh, Church of England was the the, the official religion. Uh, Legal equality was extended to other denominations, including Catholics beginning in 1836. Uh, Freedom of religion is established by the Australian Constitution in 1901. At that time, uh, 96% of the country identified as Christian, and that broke down to roughly 40% Anglican, 23% Catholic, and 33% other Christian. Uh, And those numbers held fairly steady through the 20s and 30s. So that's what we're looking at when Phryne and Dot and Hugh and all of them are running around. Um, uh, but by the 1980s, Catholicism actually surpassed Anglican, uh, Anglicanism as the most popular religious faith in Australia. Um, meanwhile, in the, the, the teens and the twenties, the 19 teens and 1920s, uh, there were increased tensions between Britain and Ireland, um, uh, which then led to increased tensions between the Anglo-Saxon Protestants and the Irish Catholics in Australia, Uh, specifically surrounding the war. The Anglo-Saxon Protestants generally supported the war and conscription and the Catholic community tended to be more critical. Uh, And then also in 1916, you have the Easter Rising um, when the Irish Irish Republicans mounted an armed insurrection to end British rule and the subsequent Irish Revolutionary Period, which I didn't really know anything about. Um, (laughs) uh, Anyway, so all of that is what's going on. That's the the backdrop. So tensions, even though there are more Catholics, the Catholic presence is is, uh, grown. uh, There's still some tension. Uh, So there is historical basis for the the tension between Dot and and Hugh and whether they will be able to be together. Uh, However, like I said, more political, less theological, which makes sense since the, you know, Anglicanism is not like the least Catholic denomination that there is. Like it's, it's one of the ones that's, that's closer to Catholicism. So it makes sense that it wouldn't be as much of a theological um, uh, issue. All right. So that's, that's the, the tensions between uh, their respective faiths. Um, so back to Dot, uh, like I said, she's, she's kind of silly and sweet. Uh, she reads celebrity gossip magazines. She takes a ladies magazine, not for the educational articles about health issues, but because of the needlepoint patterns and the oh, stories we all about do that <laughs> and the stories about blue fairies. Um, and uh, in, in that particular episode, we find out that means she is precisely the unevolved audience that the magazine's founder is trying to educate. Um, uh, as a show, I do want to interject and say the electricity thing, uh, distrust of, of telephones in that period would have been not, not widespread. Um, so Dot is silly for a lot of reasons, but her, her distrust of electricity pulsing through houses, um, is, is not the highest reason. Like a lot of people in that period would have been scared of that. 
I would agree, but I don't think the show wants us to think that. No, I, think I know. I mean, obviously, they don't give half a darn about historical accuracy. I'm not <laughs> trying to defend them on that point. I'm just saying, like, that right. is not the biggest reason that she's kind of silly. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, again, it's 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 the fear because her priest told her because of the Earth's molten core that I think is the... Yeah, that the, part's ridiculous. Yeah, so... Well, and she just, she I mean, she's still in your beliefs, and there's, there's so many times when they're investigating that I want to be like, woman, do you not have, like, any sense of, like, like, just be cool, Dot? Um, so in the episode, um, that's uh, uh, the misadventure, you know, Dot is, like, she's doing some stuff that's very, like, oh, yeah, she's, like, sneaking in and stealing stuff out of people's desks. Like, that's, like, oh, that's, that's kind of a... You know, that's uh, that's pretty brave, right? But then she goes around and does something like, oh, I'm going to steal your diary out of your locker and just, like, read the diary standing in front of your locker. You know, so, yeah, there's... Which I know is just to serve the plot, but still there's a sense for me of, like, she does something like, oh, And so by the end of the episode, she's always kind of ends up being neutral because she may do something pretty kind of maybe brave, but then she does something, like, just silly enough to be like, yeah, she's back to where she was. No, that's fair. And I think I think one of the things that is is frustrating. So part of it is the inconsistency. There are some things where it's like, got to follow what the priest says, like can't date Hugh unless the priest says it's OK, but can blackmail the priest into saying it's OK by threatening to convert and take with her her baked goods and darning skills. Can, can, um, can we talk about that subplot for a minute? Because I'm really bothered by it. Yes. What's up? So um, in... Uh, is that the same? Which episode is that? That's um, murder at Mount Parnas when uh, when she blackmails the priest. I I honestly don't remember which one. I just remember the overall the the overall arc. I don't remember which things happened in which episode. So, I think it is. Anyway, that's immaterial. Um, it's the church is having a a fete. We would say they say fate. Um, which is kind of weird, but uh, the church is having a big party, and the priest asks Dot to donate all these things, um, sewing and baking and um, all these things to um, to benefit the big party that they're having, and she's working herself to death because she's working for Miss Fisher during the day and doing this stuff for the church at night, um, and... All the while, the priest is objecting to her um, walking about with a Protestant, she says. And she has this conversation with Mr. Butler, and Mr. Butler essentially says, Hey, wouldn't it be a shame if um, the church didn't get to benefit from all your labors? So why don't you tell the priest, you know, you lay off me or I'm not baking you a cake and sewing you all this stuff. Um, and And... They uh, they do that because Mr. Butler says, think what Miss Fisher would do in this situation. Um, so so that's a little that's a little hinky as far as like who should you be emulating in religious matters. Um, but also like I think they missed just a fabulous opportunity to have a conversation about um, 
women's labor in the religious sphere and the fact that like women do make those church parties happen then as now as i'm sure um you know the two of you as i have have been in situations where you feel like you're doing all this work um and and behind the scenes and and probably not getting credit for it so i feel like that could have been a historically valid way to criticize gender and religion and they didn't take it and they were just like oh blackmail no, you're yeah. you're exactly right. And I think and that's one of the things that I think is frustrating about Dot is for all her silliness, like she has her her arc of growth over the series is that she matures by becoming more like the people on the show who are not religious. So like we find out yes, Mr. Buck explicitly says he's not religious anymore ever since his wife died. Like he flat out says that. Um, and we know Franny's not religious. And these are these are the people who she is following and the people she's becoming more like. Um, and that's uh, she becomes just more and more comfortable, sh- you know, bending the Ten Commandments as Miss Fisher told her she would have to right when she was hired. Um, and it it just feels like, you know, it, it, as far as the show's concer- concerned, religion is a childish thing. And Dot is demonstrating that she has become a woman by putting those childish things away a little bit. Um and later on, I know, I know, um, I don't know if you guys have, have seen all the way to the end, but later on, when when she and Hugh are actually looking at getting married, she talks about considering doing a civil ceremony so she just doesn't have to deal with her crazy priest. Which, to be fair, he's kind of a nut, but, um, like she, yeah, so she's very much, yeah, she she just it, she becomes sort of more mature the less religious she is. Yeah, that's that's very upsetting. Yeah, I see that. And I think, too, I was trying to think if there were other more positive portrayals of faith. I mean, Hugh, Hugh is also supposed to be um, there aren't. A, a, a person of faith, although it's not entirely clear how much is him and how much is his mom, like that she's the sort of driving force for him. And he's willing to convert to Catholicism for Dot uh, again later on. Um, Father O'Leary, like we said, is kind of a nut. He's the one who thinks that the you know electrical appliances are going to explode the earth. Um, and also when he objects to Dot, you know, stepping out with or, or kissing Hugh, he claims that he is just the messenger of God. But then when it becomes personally inconvenient for him to stick to that message, all of a sudden there's flexibility, which I, I that just, I, that drives me nuts. Like, don't, don't put that on God. And if you're putting it on God, you darn well better stick to it. Um, uh, and then later on in, in series three, there's a, a plot line involving modern scientific discoveries of an expanding universe, uh, which he then takes the, stereotypical that's against the bible and bible versus science and and science is blasphemy and it it falls to Hugh to convince him that there is a possibility of of compatibility between science and faith um so the show likes Dottie the show likes Hugh but it's basically pretty eye-rolly about their faith like oh those silly religious people um Father O'Leary's a nut um it's just yeah there's just not a lot of positive portrayals of of religion am, am i missing something here is there a more nuanced portrayal of faith that i i didn't catch Sarah? Nope, there's no no faith is um, for stupid evil hypocritical people yeah <laughs> um every time religion is portrayed um so basically you're either um naive and deluded or religion can all it can also be a very sinister thing um so we have this extremely bizarre, I would say, kind of like, you know, retro added um, overarching plot in which uh, Murdoch Foyle, who is kind of the big bad, apparently is kidnapping, 
you know, and murdering young girls so that he can ascend to become an Egyptian god, I think is what they tell us in the last episode. And yep. you, al- you also have um, it as a as a sinister thing in the um, episode uh, at the beginning of the first series, um, Raisins and Almonds, that um, you have uh, Judaism and there's, a, uh, you know, the good characters. The other thing I thought was also fairly uh, uh, on that is uh, the good characters or the good um, Jewish characters on in that particular episode. They are very anti any sort of Zionist Jew, uh, Jewish homeland and, and the bad characters, the bad Jewish characters or the villain characters in it are they are they are pro Zionist and, you know, pro Jewish homeland. Um, but yeah, the you know, the idea of like, oh, we're going to be. We really believe this this stuff about our our historical faith, you know that is portrayed poorly um, in that particular episode, and the fact that oh those characters want their faith to have meaning in real life, well the only way they can apparently they can live that in their life is to do these negative things, commit these crimes in order to uh, fulfill what they believe is their religious destiny. Um, and so we see um, religion portrayed negatively or Judaism, at least, uh, portrayed negatively that way. And then, yeah, we have the this whole bizarre thing about the big bad wanting to become an Egyptian god. And I just, again, that really felt extremely shoehorned in at the very end that they're like, oh, we have to do something with the big bad at the end of the season. Let's Let's do this. It was just truly bizarre um, because you have in that last episode you have him trying to become a um, Egyptian god you have a you have a kind of you you have one kind of good priest I guess um, who's very briefly seen one good Catholic priest who's very briefly seen in that last episode um, telling them where to find um, another character who has become a nun to kind of for kind of penance um, for what she believes are the sins or she doesn't even call them a sin. She just calls them mistakes um, earlier in her life. Yeah. It's just religion is always kind of portrayed negatively. I, I can't think of a single positive instance of it in the entire series. Good, good points, Sarah. Thank you. Um, Victoria, did you have something you wanted to talk about uh, with regard to portrayals of religion? Uh, I really think we've covered it. Um, I I just think this is another instance of what I was saying earlier, um, the the show really working too hard to uh, fit into 21st century sensibilities that just makes, uh, that shortchanges its characters and just kind of flattens them out, makes them ahistorical in a very uh, jarring way. That's fair. And I think I, I think one of the things that, that really bugged me about that is that sometimes it doesn't even do it well. Uh, you know, there's an episode where she finds out that a friend of hers uh, was in a was in a homosexual relationship. Uh, and her first comment is something like, you know, uh, I don't know, love shouldn't be uh, punishable by jail time or you shouldn't be imprisoned for love, which is, of course, ridiculous coming from Franny, who's whose whole relationship attitude is that you can have sex without there being love so she it does not make sense for her to assume 
if they're having sex, they must be in love. That's just, that's not how she operates. And second of all, she then proceeds to go and out this guy to basically everyone she talks to, even though his behavior is criminal under the, that code at that time. Um, and so that I just, it drove me a little bit nuts that she's supposed to be so evolved. And then her immediate response is to do what she always does, which is tell everybody everything and hope something happens. Um. And of course, something usually does. Um, anything else on um, religion Religion before we move on to a brief lightning round? Not on my end. Uh, nope. All right. All right. So real quick lightning round, folks. Uh, any themes that we've not talked about, uh, pet peeves or other last minute comments, including any thoughts or feelings you have about the upcoming film? Victoria. Uh, my thoughts and feelings about the upcoming film are that we don't need it <laughs> and that I am uh, I am at peak fan service reboot fatigue um i don't want any more of this stuff i don't want any more full house i don't want any more roseanne i don't want any more miss fisher i don't want any more sister sister i don't want any more anything like can we please just let things end as a people it would be great if we could other than that something that i wanted to say about the characters are um there aren't a lot of super well-rounded male characters outside of Hugh, um, and Jack and Bert and Sess pretty much are just ripped from Sherlock Holmes. Um, Jack is Lestrade. He's the sort of establishment uh, detective that helps the non-establishment detective, Phryne, um, do her job, gives her space to do it, and Bert and Sess are uh, the street people, the Baker Street Irregulars. Um, so they're sort of not original characters in a charming way, but, um, yeah, they're just ripped out of homes and that's fun. Fair enough. Uh, Sarah, what's your lightning round contribution? Um, I, we mentioned this a little bit earlier, but the, the accuracy, accuracy of the show, um, the clothes and settings, they do a huge amount to, uh, emphasize that, but then they, Bryony lets, she has some ahistorical, uh, beliefs that were, that we're just putting in there just so she can be, you know, current as of the time. The other thing that I found increasingly frustrating, especially as I was watching these, you know, three or four at a time uh, in preparation for this episode was no matter how bizarre, no matter how thin, no matter how improbable the plot always ties together at the very end. And no matter how different and disseparate the plots might seem. And I was sitting there hoping, I was like, separate storylines, separate storylines. We can do it, guys. Oh, no. It somehow has something to do with the murder and Franny solves it. And every single time. And the the amount of stretching that they have to do to make to make these things happen is just truly uh, impressive and slightly ridiculous and i think that on a couple of them they should have just had um separate uh, separate things and the very last one is there was there were one or two instances where i just there were some plot holes that i feel uh that there were just a lot of plot holes that i felt like they kind of had individual episodes and then they're like oh crap um and they some of the small things don't fill in uh very well you know if uh, Franny is actually that poor, but she's hanging out with her super incredibly like rich aunt and cousin who, why would she have been living with them if they were that poor? Why would they have been helping them? It just so, so, small things like that, that just don't quite um, make uh, sense to me, but that's it. All right. 
well, my uh, lightning round would be, uh, so I guess dealing with the film, I, I hope Franny and Jack don't get together, uh, which I know is not going to happen because, of course, they will. But uh, they don't work as a couple unless one of them changes significantly. Um, if, if Franny's willing to give up her I belong to no man deal, um, then they might have a shot. But at this point, while they have great chemistry, I, I think there's just there is not a way to write them without one of them ceasing to be the character that's been established, which is probably what will happen. But anyway, that's kind of my hope for the film. Um, and then um, I, my other thing is I think uh, Miss Fisher has pretty mediocre detective skills. She uh, is shocked that that Dot is is put in danger when she sends her to investigate undercover where she believes there's been a murder. Um, not like someone stole the milk money. Like this is she thinks it's been a murder, and she's like, oh no, Dot couldn't possibly be in danger, and is just shocked uh, when she is. Uh, she's always compromising the scene, and unlike other detectives, she's not just finding things that the the crummy police, um, the incompetent police, have missed. She is actively preventing the police from finding those things, even though the police are not incompetent on this show. Um, and uh, yeah, is gumming up the works for for all kinds of uh, political or uh, criminal due process issues, and. Um, and also, P.S., when you're going off to meet the serial killer, you take the constable with you because you're going to lose your gun. You always oh, lose your gun. Amen. Oh, that drove me nuts. Yeah, you don't lock him in the, the cell. That just was the dumbest. Anyway, so, um, yeah, so, but um, I understand. I just I wish the show would acknowledge that she's kind of a crummy detective. Um, anyway, moving on uh, to passing on. Uh, Sarah, what recommendations would you have for our listeners who uh, enjoy Miss Fisher? So... The main thing that I take from Miss Fisher is not even the, it is mainly this um, historical detective solving things kind of pre-CSI, all that. And so the thing that uh, it made me think of while I was watching it um, was the series Foils War, which is a British uh, detective drama set um, during and uh, shortly after World War II in um, Kent, England. And we have our, our main character, uh, uh, Chief Inspector or Chief Superintendent Foyle, and so he is kind of—he's the same personality that Jack would have would be if he if the show took Jack a little more seriously and a little more fleshed out, and he didn't have a Friday Fisher coming around, kind of mucking up the works and just doing all these shortcuts. And he's very methodical, um, and it still has kind of gorgeous clothes um, from that kind of 1940s era. And yeah, it's the thing that I really take away from it is I love watching detective shows before kind of we wave the magic wand of science and it just solves everything. The science solves everything for us that the the people are actually having to detect things and use their mind. And so you get that a lot in Foil's War. Yeah, that show is 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 excellent. And I, I, I'm not always super into some of the, the BBC series, but that one's really, really good. Um, it's very well done. And, and Foil's he's kind of a rock star. Um uh, my recommendation is uh, another detective TV series also. Um, this one is the number one ladies detective agency. Uh, it's also based on a series of books. Um, and it was just one season uh, by HBO. Uh, it's available on HBO. And also I think the, their episodes are, are you can actually watch them on YouTube for whatever reason. But uh, it is also about a female detective who sets up for herself. But she is in Botswana. And uh, she also has a very sort of matriarchal role. Uh, she has her, her collection of friends. Uh, she has her specific interests in, uh, in issues that involve women um, who might not otherwise have a lot of options. So there's a lot of thematic similarities, uh, but she is not someone who has endorsed uh, sort of Phryne's, uh modern sexual ethic or moder uh, other modern sensibilities necessarily. 
Um, it's it's very charmingly done. Um, I I'm trying to remember if there is any white person that you ever see. Um, it is it is on all black cast as you would expect since it is in uh, set in Botswana, and I think a significant amount of the cast are. Um, are African, although some of them uh, I know are, are British actors, and the lead is actually, um, uh, I believe, an American musician, um, but she does a fantastic job. Anyway, so that's it's really well done. It's really interesting, and I honestly hope a lot of people watch it so we can maybe even do an episode on it because it's it's got a lot of interesting things to say. Victoria, what's your recommendation? Uh, I am also like Sarah going to recommend a World War II era um, detective show. Uh, I'm recommending The Bletchley Circle, um, which is a, a BBC series about women who have worked at Bletchley Park, um, where the, the code breakers broke the German enigma um, during World War II, and they uh, post-war reconvene to uh, have shenanigans and solve crimes. Uh, like Miss Fisher, there are a lot of wonderful coats and hats, so uh, if you if you watch TV shows for coats and hats, the Bletchley Circle might also be for you, and it is slightly more historically nuanced than Miss Fisher, so I will endorse it for that reason as well. All right, sounds good. Uh, with that, thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page uh, and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison, and Elizabeth Bremner is our intern. For Sarah Davis and Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, I'm Alexis Neal. Uh, tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss theories of gender with Jennifer Hockenberry Dragseth. Until then, uh, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love. <laughs>